You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine for the Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and creative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Chip Wade. We're known for our hospitality. We're known for our culture. I have the daunting task of keeping that culture vibrant, alive, while at the same time evolving it. Right. The culture has to evolve because people evolve and grow. I am really excited to talk to Chip Wade, who was handpicked by Danny Meyer in 2022 to succeed him as CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group in New York City, shepherding the brand into the post pandemic landscape. Now, Chip has worked in restaurants from Red Lobster to Legal Seafoods to TGI Fridays. He is an industry veteran, and he is now going to helm the ship of really an iconic group of restaurants in New York City. I can't wait to get his take on so many things. Really looking forward to this interview with Chip Wade. Hi, Chip. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. I'm excited. I am so excited. You don't understand. I am obsessed with the Union Square Hospitality Group and, <laughs> and now all of the restaurants in your portfolio. And I'm really excited for you on this position. Congratulations. 
Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled. Yes. Yeah. And you, and you, as I said in my intro to you, you are an industry veteran. I mean, you have worked at, I'm from Boston. Yeah, you are, have worked at Legal Seafoods. You have worked at the iconic TGI Fridays, right? Mm, yes. And you, and Red Lobster. How could I forget Red Lobster? Yeah. So you have really kind of run the spectrum of, of restaurants across this country. And now- you're in a very unique position, so I cannot wait to dive into that. But first, I'm going to start this conversation the way I start all my conversations, which is by asking your favorite restaurant. If you could take me to just one, and you wow. can't, you cannot pick one that's in the Union Square Hospitality Group. You got to pick a restaurant that speaks to you and is a part is completely a departure from any of your business ties. That's interesting. Um, okay, so I might give you two. That's um, fine. Uh, the first one, this restaurant's closed, but it's Ming's Restaurant in Boston in Wellesley Blue Ginger. If you've ever been there, and it was probably a good 15, 18 years ago that I went there. But I had, I was with my wife. I had an absolutely fantastic culinary experience, but I also had a wonderful like service and hospitality yes. experience. And that was a long-running restaurant. I think it closed in 2018 or 2017. Um, but that has always made my list. And it's always stuck with you. And it sounds like, you know, knowing your background, service and impeccable service is something you probably have an eye for more than the average bear. Am I right? That, that's correct. If you even go further back into my career, I, I actually went to culinary school, right? So I was a a sous chef in a French restaurant outside of Philly when I was 20 and 19. And so my, my passion and love started with all things food related. And what I experienced at uh, Ming's restaurant, again, Blue Ginger, again, it's closed, was this wonderful collision of creative culinary expertise and graciousness and warmth that comes with hospitality. Mm, I yeah. love that. I love that. Okay, you said two. So what's your second? It's a two-unit chain in Asheville, North Carolina. It's called 12 Bones Smokehouse. 12 Bones Smokehouse. It is a barbecue joint. Okay. It's a husband and wife team. And there, I love barbecue. It is almost the quintessential American cuisine. In fact, it's probably the only kind of American cuisine to speak of. And so mm. I worked on a barbecue brand for the better part of four years. I love the cuisine. I love going into a great barbecue place mm -hmm. because what you get in barbecue, when, when they excel, you're going to have a Ford F-1050 parked right next to a Mercedes Benz. That's <laughs> right? very and true. Because it is this, this cuisine and the experience that travels across all socioeconomic environments. So that's the second restaurant. Again, 12 bone. Barbecue is a great uniter, isn't it? Exactly. exactly. It really is. And especially I lived in Arkansas for many years. And, you know, that's where I really got introduced to some really great barbecue. They take it to another level in the South. Yes. You know, it really is uh, not that you can't get great barbecue in New York City because you can in Chicago. Hello. But oh, which is where I right. live. But but in the South, it's an art form. It really is an art form. OK, this is really interesting because generally, you know, on to dine for, we interview all sorts of people. Many of them aren't in the food world. They're, they're, they're entrepreneurs, they're CEOs. So it's kind of fun 
to interview someone like yourself who is in the food world, okay? Because yeah. we can kind of speak the same language. But what I've noticed is that most people fall into two categories. They fall into either the creative, where they are the chef, they do have the focus on the food and the flavor and the cuisine, or they are the business, okay? And yeah. with you, your, your path has diverged and you have mo you've moved up in a corporate structure and you have obviously kept your love of great food that's, that started your career. But can you talk to me about those mixing roads and those intertwining roads? And when did it start where you were sort of tapped to take on a more managerial, more of a business role rather than work in the kitchen as a chef? It started when, uh, after I completed culinary school, I immediately went uh, back to get my bachelor's degree in hospitality management. And I graduated from Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And then I got my bachelor's at a small school in outside of Philadelphia called mm -hmm. Widener University. And while I, because I always had to work, I was raised by a single mom. And it was common for me to have two jobs during my collegiate period. Mm -hmm. And so during college, I worked as a kitchen employee at a Bennigan's restaurant, if you'll remember that. I do indeed. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I also worked as a back waiter at the Hotel DuPont, mm. which is a preferred hotel. It has been. It's one of the premier hotels in the Mid-Atlantic region. And so I found myself kind of oscillating back and forth there between structure and discipline um, that came from working for a chain and working at this as a, as a back waiter at a French continental restaurant mm -hmm. that was called the green room. I don't know if it's still, the hotel is still there, but mm -hmm. the restaurant was called the green room. And so I've, I've been comfortable navigating through both worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's actually something that, that excites me mm -hmm. of, of being comfortable of navigating through the creative side of our industry, while at the same time, understanding and embracing the importance of discipline and structure and organizational design, if you will. Fascinating. So at what point, as you're kind of working your way up, do you realize, I really have a knack for this? Meaning, where do you feel like your real strength lies? You know, there's, there's things that we, that people tap us and say, hey, you're good at this, but what do you think is your greatest strength in the restaurant business? Um, I think, my, well, this is an odd question. It's, it's a bit self-congratulatory, but I think my greatest strength is around the people, talent development, and, and the culture. Wherever I was, as, as a young manager, later, as, as you know, that I worked for TGI Fridays, I was an area director. I supervised about eight restaurants in New England and later picked up some restaurants in New Jersey. My strength is around nurturing, developing, and growing the next generation of leaders. Mm. And I, in that role as a, as a regional director for TGI Fridays, I was doing some very unorthodox things to grow our talent. Like what? Give me an example. I still do it today. I put all of my GMs on a reading assignment. And so... We, wow, this is going back to 1992, mm -hmm. 1993, I asked all my leaders to read books. And so we were on this quarterly reading assignment. Mm. 
bottle after the end of 90 days or 120 days. And I would have a, a fruitful exchange of ideas about what did you learn from re- reading this book? In what book? Give me an example, like a leadership book. Yeah. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders. Sure. Right? That's a great one. It's a great one, which is mm-hmm. a classic. I asked some of my leaders to read Ken Blanchard. And Ken and his writings have been very instrumental in our industry. Ken Blanchard has written two books, and I often prescribe them. One book is called The One Minute Manager. Okay. And the second book is called The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. It's okay. a very title, but it's a very fun. Both of those books are fun, whimsical, and they're particularly germane to younger managers who are just starting their careers. So for me, I knew that my success was inextricably tied to the success of my leaders. Mm. Therefore, I, and in, in continue today, spend meaningful time coaching, nurturing, developing people, that, which also means praising them, but also giving them constructive feedback. Mm-hmm. And the last response to this question is I tell leaders all the time, I'm going to give you feedback whether you want it or not. Uh, <laughs> It's coming your way. Get ready. <laughs> and I, I didn't add to that, that I'm giving you feedback because I care about you as a person mm-hmm. and I want your dreams to come true. Mm-hmm. And if I can play a small role in that, then that is where my joy really lies. Isn't it interesting because you could have gotten the cliff notes or the bullet points of the books that you recommended and told it to them or given it to them in like, corporate material to look over, but you went right to the source. I think I think there's a power to that because then they're like experiencing that information for themselves and thinking about it versus yeah. being told it, right? There really is a, there's something very subtle, but very important about that. Well, I, I think there is something really important of sitting at your kitchen table with a Diet Coke or root beer or glass of Pinot Grigio and reading um, and interpreting the author's content material. I tell this story a lot at USHG. I was, as you noted, worked for Red Lobster for a number of years. I ran a large division for Red Lobster and had about 95 restaurants under my supervision. And when Danny's book came out, Setting the Table, I ended up buying 120 copies of the book. Wow. And I gave it to every general manager. I gave it to my entire staff support. And here's the unorthodox things. I also gave them homework. Mm. So I gave them a book. Wow. I sent them 15. The only way that I would know that they would actually read the book Mm. and and then actually adopt the philosophies and core tenets was to give them homework. Mm. Leaders, regardless of if you're in a retail or restaurant, no one likes homework. But I sent them all 15 questionnaires with a deadline and an expectation that they had to send their homework to me, double space typed to my office. (laughs) Okay, so this is really interesting because, you know, we started this conversation by talking about how your career has really deviated, right? From being a sous chef in, in a French restaurant to what you're talking about, which is really the principles of building a great corporate culture. It's about a management and it's about really nurturing a staff. You know, you said nobody likes homework, but people do like to grow and they do like to be mentored. And you know, I think back on my career, there are very few people who take a hands-on role, an active role in 
your development. And that must have, you must have felt the difference when you did that. I think the, the answer to that is yes. I definitely felt a difference. Now, you know, I've got, I have a culinary background. As you know, I've spent time in operations. For me, a pivotal moment was I spent six and a half years of my career in HR. Mm. And so spending time in the discipline of HR, honing my craft or my skills around training, around succession planning, around talent development, building a great culture, uh, its genesis was of, of my kind of knowledge was mm-hmm. during that during that period. Mm-hmm. And again, it brings me a tremendous amount of pride and mm-hmm. a sense of fulfillment mm-hmm. to watch individuals grow and mature. Because mm-hmm. listen, I love this industry. I can't imagine doing anything else than being in the hospitality industry. And why? Why do you say that? First of all, food is this universal love that we all have, right? Amen. Whether you're in Italy, whether you're in Tokyo, whether you're here in New York, when we have a great food experience, we can all close our eyes. And for the listeners who will listen to this, I'm actually closing my eyes, right? Mm -hmm. And I can remember being in my grandmother's kitchen and watching her cook Mm -hmm. with love and passion and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so my love from hospitality, my love for food and cooking starts with those young early experiences of being with my grandmother and watching her being delighted and surprised by the food that she gave to me, her grandchild, my my cousins and my siblings, number one. You know, I, I, hospitality for me is this idea of doing something for others yes. and caring for others when you want others to win, then hospitality is on your side, right? Mm-hmm. That's a when you find joy as I do in seeing others smile mm. because of something that my team has done, that brings me joy. I, mm. I again I can't imagine being in any other business than the hospitality restaurant business. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute, but first, thank you to our sponsors. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. 
American national agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You have worked, as we mentioned, at Red Lobster and TGI Fridays. When I look at that, I think to myself, you must have been such a student of the process because when I think of TGI Fridays, I think they're just such a great example of executing a plan well and having everyone on board with the same mission, right? They are across the board, right? There's such consistency to that restaurant. We know that consistency is so important, even if you only own one restaurant, never mind if you own hundreds, right? Yeah, what, yeah. What, what did you learn from both, if you could share one small snippet of what you learned from t- working at TJI Fridays and then also what you learned from working at Red Lobster? What I learned at TGI Fridays, again, my first official job out of college, was the importance of creating a great culture. Fridays started in Manhattan by, by a restaurateur by the name of Alan Stillman, and who also went on to create Smith and Walensky. Right. So Alan is this amazing uh, restaurateur, but he had a couple of core philosophies and tenets that drove the the culture. And he was relentless in ensuring that every MIT, that every employee understood these management philosophies Hmm. around creating a great culture, about having really high standards. Um, So I learned, number one, from Fridays, the importance of having great philosophies and core tenets of Mm -hmm. a great culture. And then secondarily, I learned from TGI Fridays, I think, a bias for action and speed, right? So mm-hmm. when I joined Fridays in 1985, it truly was the granddaddy of casual dining. Mm-hmm. It was the first bar and grill long before there was a Ruby Tuesdays or an yes. Applebee's or a Bennigan's. Yes. Fridays was the granddaddy. And it looked, it, it always looked like a fun place to work, right? With yeah. a flair, like something that the employees were always happy. There was a sense of jovial and conviviality am- amongst the folks that work there, right? So they're, they must have been doing something to imbue that because it was always like consistently on in every TGI Fridays. Yeah. And it, it really started with the people that Fridays hired. And the way that people were trained and indoctrinated. You mentioned flair, which was these buttons and yes. pins that our servers could wear to bring their personality to work every single day. Right. That was ahead of its time, wasn't it? It clearly was yeah. ahead of its time. Yeah. And so we we Fridays prided itself on hiring colorful, eclectic, centric individuals who enjoyed having fun. It was just embedded into the culture. So so I learned that. And again, I learned the, the importance of a bias for action because 
I ran the Fridays as a GM on Newberry and Exeter in Boston. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was the fourth or fifth busiest TGI Fridays in the country. Wow. And so you had to understand like movement and pace and energy. Bias for action was essential. I love that bias for action. You got to get going. You got to yeah. make it happen, right? <laughs> There's no lollygagging. So I interviewed the shark, Damon John, and he talks uh, quite passionately about his time at Red Lobster. He was a waiter at Red Lobster, very proud of that experience and what he learned from it. I'm wondering what did the experience at Red Lobster teach you and how was it different from TGI Fridays? Yeah, that's interesting. I would say on a, I, I've said this a couple of times when I joined Darden, which was the parent of Red Lobster. One of the things I learned at the time, Darden operated a number of brands and, and Darden was a brand focused enterprise. TGI Fridays was was a restaurant focused enterprise, if that makes sense, right? It does. So yep. Darden was a spun off from General Mills in 1995, and so General Mills, obviously the the large cereal and consumer packaged good conglomerate, uh, Darden was part of that their that portfolio spun off in 1995, and much of the DNA of being part of a consumer packaged goods was part of Darden restaurants. It didn't make mm. it bad or worse. It just was the environment. Sure. And so at the time I joined, every brand president was came from the discipline of marketing. Mm. And so it was managed and led as a marketing brand building enterprise. TGI Fridays was 100% focused on restaurant operations and execution and all of their energy at Fridays was focused there. Darden mm -hmm. and Red Lobster, it was focused on how do you grow a brand and a component of that was, you know, spending 30, 40, 50 million dollars a year in marketing and advertisement. For, let me let me just stop you there because I want listeners to kind of make the connection. So when I was a kid, I, I actually have never eaten at a Red Lobster in my life. And okay. I know about the cheddar biscuits. I know about <laughs> that. Those are famous. But I grew up near the sea. I'm south, 40 minutes south of Boston. And so I grew up around great seafood. And my dad, who is, uh, you know, just my one of my favorite people in the world, he would always say, those commercials for Red Lobster look so mouthwatering. They make seafood look better than any ad they've ever seen. So I can now understand with all of that emphasis on marketing, how much of a difference it made, but it also must have had the process like TGI Fridays down pat because they have a, a consistent experience across the board, did it not? Yeah, without question, right? So when I ran uh, TGI Fridays, there were 704 restaurants across North America. And so the guests, the consumers, wanted to have the same experience in Altoona, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. as they did Bismarck, North Dakota. Right, right. And right. so 97% of the menu was, the again, the exact same across all of the restaurants in North America. Slightly deviated. Red Lobster had a fresh seafood program. And so in certain parts of the market, a certain species was more germane, more relevant. Of right? course. But those systems, the disciplines, the general operating processes were the, exactly the same wherever you went. Mm. So for our listeners who do not know, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners know who Danny Meyer is, but he is really just such a 
shining example of great hospitality. I would say that first and foremost before we talk about all the restaurants he started, Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, et cetera, et cetera, Blue Smoke. I could go on and on, Tabla that he started. But he really is the gold standard of hospitality. That's what I'll, I'll say. So for him, for him to handpick you for your current position is really an honor. What did you think when you were chosen as CEO and be how are you hoping to move this organization forward? Because it's such a Herculean task, right? Yeah, yeah. Danny and I began this journey about 10 months before the actual announcement. Uh, so you you mentioned he's the gold standard from a hospitality perspective. Mm-hmm. I would add that he's also kind of a gold standard from a leadership perspective, right? He leads with his heart. He's a compassionate and passionate and caring individual. Yes. In December, I guess, of 21, he and I uh, began the conversation. And to answer your question directly, I was humbled. I was elated, excited. I was nervous when he, we use this term at USHD a lot, where we play tennis with each other, which Mm. is just our vernacular for let's have an exchange and you're going to lob something across the net and I'm going to run across and hit the ball back at you. But we began this conversation in December and I said to Danny, a couple of things, Danny, you have four wonderful kids. Did any of them did you think <laughs> about giving them the business? Yeah. And so we had this exchange. Uh, one is in the, in the business. She's a wonderful entrepreneur restaurateur in herself, but the others careers that were not in hospitality. And so watching him, and we actually then hired someone who is an expert in organizational design and succession planning. This is a very thoughtful approach to succession planning Hmm. that he and I, our chief people officer at the time, and then Danny's long-term partner, a gentleman by the name of Richard Corain, who we call RC, he's been with Danny for 27 years, The four of us went on this journey, meeting sometimes twice a month to talk about why we're making this this decision, what's the narrative that we're going to tell both internally and externally, why, Danny, are you making this decision now, why Chip Wade? Well, first of all, just listening, you know, who am I? I know nothing, but just listening to your extensive background in so many different areas, HR behind, you know, front of the house, back of the house, organizational management. I think we know the why. The, que- <laughs> the question <laughs> The question is, I, 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 it had to have been intimidating to take the role on because there's such iconic classic restaurants. Uh, Danny has so lovingly nurtured them, right? It's like, yes. it's like, it's like taking over someone's garden who, who, yeah. you know, who is like a master gardener, right? I would be so yeah. afraid I would not water the plants correctly. Yeah, it is daunting at times. I've been at it now nine months officially as the CEO. And as, as you know, when Danny hired me, initially I was hired as the president, later became chief operating officer. So the, the, the good news is I wasn't coming in, you know, brand spanking new. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's challenging to follow an iconic individual who has created these really special, magical, unique restaurants in a very special environment and culture, right? I mean, I think we're known for our hospitality. We're known for our culture. I have the daunting task of 
keeping that culture vibrant, alive, while at the same time evolving it, right? The culture has to evolve because people evolve and grow. And so, yeah, I I, I, I both can be uh, nervous by the challenge and also exhilarated. Exhilarated, right. You know, I've had the opportunity to interview Danny at Union Square Cafe with uh, Chef Lena Cardulo, who's absolutely phenomenal with her delicious fare. And then I've also done a to dine for with Daniel Lubetsky, who's the CEO of Kind Bars at Gramercy Tavern. He chose Gramercy Tavern uh, as his favorite restaurant specifically because of Danny and how mm. Danny run, runs restaurants. So I am very familiar with with uh, not only the restaurants, but Danny's very unique style and hospitality. I'm wondering, what are you seeing changing right now in the industry as far as dining? And where do you hope to, I don't want to say change, but you know, evolve some of these restaurants to kind of adapt to what's happening right now? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. And some of these changes are a direct result of the pandemic. I think the first thing that's one of the things that's changing is the public, both in our restaurants, but also in casual dining, they value time and convenience more than they did before the pandemic, right? Yes. And so the idea of sitting at Gramercy Tavern over a two and a half hour lunch, I honestly think those days are gone. Yeah, there, it's a very rare experience that you have the luxury of that time and want to want to do that. Yes, exactly. So that's changing number one, and so consumers will will place more emphasis on the ability to still have a wonderful experience. But when the check comes, I don't want to wait fourteen or nineteen or twenty one minutes, right? Right. And so what's changing number one is speed, time, and convenience. Okay. I would say what's changing number two, these are both a result of the pandemic is, I think the guests are placing a higher emphasis on cleanliness mm. and hygiene. Mm-hmm. And I think watching human behavior, right? Mm. I think if you went to a restaurant in 2018 and you saw the hostess, you know, kind of run her, I don't have any hair, but run <laughs> her fingers through her hair you probably wouldn't think anything of it. Right, right? you wouldn't think anything. If you if you saw someone scratch their face, it was like, okay, no no big deal. I think consumers today are watching yes. and paying attention to safety, to sanitation, to cleanliness, and an elevated level. That's interesting, and, and I, I can see that. I would say number three, this is not necessarily a new trend, but I think it continues to evolve. The world is getting smaller, right? And here in the U.S., we want to experience different cuisines. Mm -hmm. We want to broaden our flavor profiles. We want to experience different sauces and spices and different way to eat our favorite cuisine. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's up to us and others to ensure that innovation stays a key part of the evolution of the brand. And I'll give you one example. Non-alcoholic drinks are on point today, right? Mm -hmm. And people want to come into, I'm here at our Manhattan restaurant today, Mm -hmm. which was, I'll I'll do a little shameless plug, was recently voted like one of the top 50 best bars in the U.S. I believe it. And I think there are people that want to have a non-alcoholic drink that was still done with the same level of 
artistry. Yes. Exactly. That they would get in a cocktail that has gin or vodka. And so I think that is another thing that's changing and will continue to evolve. That's really interesting. I I believe you. Let me ask you this. As you look forward, right, because CEO also involves really creating your own vision, what would you like to be your fingerprints on Union Square Hospitality Group? And what would you like to see happen in the future because of your leadership? Sure. Um, I think uh, I would say a couple of things, first and foremost. I want my fingerprint on this organization to be one where we are relentlessly focused on growth. Hmm. And growth for me, number one, the most important is, is our people. And so I want us to continue to be a learning organization mm-hmm. and a nurturing organization where, and I, again, I frequently use this term where we are nurturing and developing the next generation of leaders, mm-hmm. women leaders, people of color mm-hmm. leaders. That to me is really important. So number one, in terms of my thumbprint on this organization is growth around people. Number two is I would love to see us continue to grow. Uh, We have this wonderful brand called Daily Provisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have four today. Mm -hmm. We have one under construction in Cobble Hill section of of Brooklyn. I love the egg sandwich. Thank you. I'm so proud of the team. We have an amazing culinary director, a woman by the name of Claudia Fleming, who's well known in our industry. She's a James Beard award winning pastry chef and cookbook author. She leads all the culinary innovation and creativity at Daily Provision. So apologies for the digression. The second area is I'd like to see us grow. And Mm -hmm. I think that confidently we can modestly grow that brand. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can modestly grow our fine dining brands as well. And so that's number two is this idea of growing new units. Number three, I want to have my fingerprint on this idea of something that started with Danny and hopefully under me that we just accelerated, which is our ability to engage and touch and make a meaningful difference in the, in the guests that come into our restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. I want people to say, I had a wonderful experience at Gramercy Tavern and the culinary was fantastic, but the, there was a server who made our experience special and mm-hmm. memorable. Mm-hmm. And the way that I do that, the third thing is by making sure that I'm writing personal notes to our guests, mm-hmm. that I'm wow. calling our guests and thanking them for, for choosing to dine at Union Square Cafe or The Modern, right? There's mm-hmm. over 25,000 restaurants in New York City, and the guests are making a choice to dine with us for a variety of reasons. And I believe that I have a responsibility and those who report to me to pause and call guests or send an email to guests. And so those three things would be what I hope are my thumbprints on the enterprise. When it comes to hospitality, and you could also extend this to the upper leadership positions that you you said at the very beginning of this conversation, you love to nurture, right? You said yeah. that you love to kind of raise up leaders and really guide them. Yeah. Do you think the qualities necessary for those roles have to be innate, or do you think they absolutely can be taught? Meaning when you have candidates come to you, 
what specifically are you looking for? And what, where, where's the magic sauce of, oh, I, I know that this person is teachable and coachable versus this person just naturally has it. Where do you fall in that? Yeah, I, th- I think there's both, right? When you ask the question and I'll respond, what do we look for? We, we basically are looking for six characteristic traits when we hire leaders at all levels. We want people to be kind and optimistic. That That's one, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, honestly, it, can it be taught? Yes. Yes and no. That Yes and no, right? Yeah, that kind of comes with the, that's kind of who you are. Yeah. yeah. So number one is we, we're, look, we're looking for kind individuals and optimistic. Number two, we're looking for people who are curious, right? I can't teach people, I can teach people how to be curious. Curiosity, I think, is a wonderful personal characteristic trait. Uh, I think it's one of the key contributors to my own success is my level mm-hmm. of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, number three is we look for people that have a remarkable work ethic, right? Mm-hmm. You you have to love this industry because my young son who's 24 decided to follow dad in the hospitality industry. He's working at a resort on um, outside of Boston in Nantuck- on the island of Nantucket. Oh, amazing. And great work ethic. I tell my son, know that you're getting into an industry you're going to work when all your contemporaries are playing, right? Mm -hmm. So when your friends are at the beach on July 4th or Mother's Day, know Mm -hmm. that you're going to work. So number three is a very strong work ethic. Number four is empathy. Number five is is this idea of being self-reflective or self-aware. And then lastly, we look for people with high degree of integrity, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we look for. Mm -hmm. Some can be nurtured and developed and taught. Most of those they have to be embedded into the individual by the environment of where they grew up in. Right. You know, I learned a lot of these from my mom, mm-hmm. but I learned a lot of them from my grandmother who helped raise me and my, my grandfather. Well, you didn't get where you are today, Chip, without an incredible work ethic. But I'm wondering when you do have some free time and yes. you are looking to relax and recharge and get inspired, wh- what do you do? Is there, yeah. is it, what, what, what does Chip Wade do to kind of recreate yourself? I always say recreation is recreate. What do you, what do you do to recreate? I do, I do, I would say three things. I uh, collect rare and antiquarian books. Ooh, um, I'm okay. a, I am that geek that will go to an antiquarian book festival and mull around for three or four hours oh. and, and make an investment. Get lost. Yeah. yeah get I, lost I in yourself. Yeah. That's awesome. I love to read. When I go to a different city, I plan vacations here in the States or Canada around finding a specialty bookstore. Mm. The second thing is I enjoy playing golf. Uh And uh, number three is, maybe I should have said this first, is I love having dinner with my wife, who is my best friend. She's been my champion. She's going on this journey where as a family, we move six times and in 16 years. Mm. And so sitting down across from my wife with a glass of Pinot Grigio and a great, great dinner. Those are the three things that that's my passion and hobby. It doesn't get better than that, does it? It, it really doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. 
Chip, I have enjoyed the small amount of time I've had with you. I feel like um, I, I, I have a little small idea of the incredible trajectory of your career. And I really wish you the best at Union Square Hospitality Group. It sounds like you are off to a great start. And, mm-hmm. um, and Danny Meyer has li- really laid down a foundation of such excellence that I know you're going to enjoy just being in that environment. Well, this has been a delight. Um, It's been a pleasure to meet you and spend some time with you as well. Thank you very much. And keep an eye on us. I'm very excited about (laughs) the journey that uh, we are moving on. I am so thrilled and humbled by this relationship that I have with Danny and um, just ecstatic to be here. Wonderful. Cheers to you. Have a great day and uh, hope to see you at Manhattan with a non-alcoholic drink soon. (laughs) All the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.